Hello guys and welcome to another episode of Rikindi. Today we're joined by Arthur Propate. Arthur, a well-known psychologist here in Australia, has long been interested in how the best in people comes from great relationships that guide performance. He has advised local and multinational organizations, businesses, and nonprofit. Arthur has been invited to speak in America, Wales, Germany, England, and Vietnam, while his work has been featured in the New York Times and Times Magazine. Today, Arthur joins us to discuss how relationships contribute to performance. Arthur, thank you so much for joining us and welcome. I'm so pleased to be here and and thanks for inviting me. Arthur, as we get started, um, do you want to just tell everybody who's listening a little bit about yourself, uh, what got you interested in psychology and what led you to being featured in New York Times and and the Time magazine? (laughs) I mean, that's quite a journey. Okay, so I got, like a lot of people who start off doing psychology straight out of school, um, I, to be honest, when I started, I wanted to figure myself out. Um, I was 17, 18, and most teenagers are still just basically a mess. I'm a lot older than that now, and I'm still a little bit of a mess, but um, a little bit more awareness and comfortable with being a mess. Um, once I calmed down a little bit, I noticed that Actually, working with people is kind of fun. And it was around about that time that I made a shift from, I'd I'd always thought I'd wanted to work in clinical psychology, doing therapy and so on. That's when I discovered that you can make a bigger difference to people by fixing up the organisations within which they're operating. And partly because I experienced what can happen when an organisation goes from good to bad, but also that I've seen great leaders who brought really good things out of the people around them, including myself. Um, How I got to be featured in New York Times, where that came from was I've done a lot of work looking at personality and particularly how it's related to people's performance. And one of the things that I stumbled upon as much as anything through doing a meta-analysis, which is a a very systematic statistical review of previous research, I found that if you assess personality in the right way, it's far more effective at predicting how well someone does at school or at university than their intelligence or even how they did at school. And that's not what I grew up in psychology believing and it's certainly not what most people think works with psychology and yet it's true that um, uh, oddly enough even if you ask someone's parents about their personality they provide a better predictor of how well they'll do at school and university than the person's intelligence so it's a nice little thing just to dangle in front of you Definitely, definitely. No, that's um, that's actually quite interesting because, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but with a lot of these personality tests, um, would somebody do differently or have different results depending on their environment? You know, if somebody's at home and they take this test, uh, let's say the Myers-Briggs, for example, or if they are um, at, at, let's say, a corporate environment, they may judge themselves or assess themselves in a different manner. 
uh, the, the, the Myers-Briggs was the first uh, personality test I ever came across. And uh, like a lot of people, I was just so buzzed with this. But it kept puzzling why it was that whenever I filled this out, I came out as a really solid introvert when most people around me were telling me that I was clearly an extrovert. And what it was, was the instructions they used to give you turned me into an introvert. They've changed the instructions and I give people different instructions myself, but you change the instructions up, yeah, you can get a very different score out of not just the Myers-Briggs, but any other personality test. So that becomes quite a lot of different variables within that test because not only yeah. um, depending on how they uh, uh, instruct you, you also within your life cycle, I'm sure you, you, you change and grow um, depending on your circumstances yes. as well. Yes, yes, very much so. Um, uh, it, it, it's a, a bit different from what uh, we'll be talking about today, but um, one of the things that I have been working on is how at the same time personality tests can be remarkably unreliable and yet really useful. Um, this, these two things should not go together, but they are extremely unreliable and yet they're genuinely useful. Okay, and, and so how does that, would you say that it's useful in terms of seeing how you can um, piece people together within a company in order to maximise performance? Uh, it's useful for starting conversations with the person and guiding and developing their performance. It's useful for being able to predict who will perform better than somebody else. And both scores, personality tests can be genuinely useful. And they're, they're certainly a lot better than most of the interviews that people do. And how exactly would you say that that is? Is just because the questions sometimes uh, people wouldn't, they wouldn't know exactly which questions to ask within an interview to gauge the most they can out of that person? Often when people do interviews, they haven't thought beforehand what questions they ought to be asking that are going to be helpful and going to help to get them an idea of how people will behave once they're on the job. So they start off with really bad questions. Then they compound that by changing the questions up as they go. So if you have someone uh, coming in to win an interview and something about them you either warm to or take a dislike to, you'll change the way you ask that question. And it might just be that you didn't like their particular aftershave or their perfume or something like that and you're asking the question differently and you end up making your interview unreliable that's one of the main ways in which interviews go wrong that's the reason why people get told these days ask the same questions ask them the same way every time etc that will make your interview more reliable it may not be as helpful as it could be if those questions aren't well targeted towards what people are going to do on the job. Whereas one of the, the nice things about personality tests is that they're so standardised and everybody who gets the personality test gets asked the same questions in the same order in the same way and that removes some of the variation on each time people fill out a personality questionnaire. It doesn't remove all of it, just like we were saying before. If I'm filling it out at home when I'm feeling relaxed and there's no pressure on me, I'm going to answer those questions differently to if I'm filling it out at work and I'm part of a team that's energised and lots of things are happening around me. I'm just going to answer different. 
one of the skills of a good interviewer is that they will pull out those things that match what's happening at work. And this is in order to guide them um, yeah. to, to be the optimum person for that position. It, give them an opportunity to show how much they match the optimum person for that position. And so this is what you focused a large portion of your work on at the moment and your findings is um, yeah. choosing which personality test each company should use or? Well, that, that's a big part of it, of, of what I've been working on. Um, how personality tests can be both remarkably unreliable and still useful. And on the other side, how performance in itself works, both in the workplace, but elsewhere. And the thing that kind of brings this all together is that in both cases, you're working with a relationship between the person who's filling out the questionnaire or answering questions in the interview and the person who's asking those questions or interpreting the test or, or so on. You're dealing with a relationship and the closer the relationship and the assessment matches the relationship in the workplace, the better you're going to be at predicting how people will behave at work. Interesting. That is actually very interesting. I, 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 I find it fascinating. But then again, I find people fascinating, which is the reason why I'm still playing around with this stuff. <laughs> and so as you, um, as you have uh, taken these, these personality tests uh, to a company, what, what happens next? How does this all um, play out? Okay. Um, for, for myself, I haven't done a lot of consulting to companies directly with an existing personality test. What, one of the things I've done more has been looking at, well, what happens if you, instead of assuming everybody should be answering the same set of questions, you focus on particular groups of people and figure out what are the questions to ask them? So the, the, the standard personality tests that people use, uh, most of them are a variation on something called the big five or the five factor model. Um, this was uh, the, the, the big five, like the Myers-Briggs wasn't developed off the basis of the big five, but it's, there are four dimensions in the Myers-Briggs and therefore of the big five. Um, it, it matches really neatly. Um, those big five are extroversion versus introversion, um, conscientiousness, which is the one that's got the biggest association with people's performance, agreeableness, which is more about how well people get along with other people. Um, in Myers-Briggs terms, that's more like the feeling end of thinking. Um, openness to experience, which in Myers-Briggs terms is more like the intuition end of intuition sensing. And the one that the Myers-Briggs doesn't assess, um, it gets given a couple of different labels, one of which is uh, neuroticism for the negative end of it. I prefer talking about emotional stability, which is the more positive side. Um, one of the things with that particular model though, and, and this is a, a, a little bit of a dirty secret within psychology, how that questionnaire was developed was purely based on looking at the way people describe each other um, by rating the dictionary. So it wasn't based on any particularly 
profound theory of psychodynamics or uh, cognitive psychology. It was purely based on grabbing adjectives out of the dictionary, finding what the, the common themes among those were, constructing questionnaires on that basis, and lo and behold, you regularly get these five factors coming out. And if you do the same sort of uh, uh, research project uh, in German, you come up with exactly the same factors. And in a couple of other languages, you come up with the same factors. But although you can translate this five-factor model into any language you like, if you do the research the same way, start with their adjectives and do the same sorts of factor analyses, you don't get the big five. You get some things kind of the same, but you often get things that are actually quite different. And that's what got me interested, quite apart from looking at how personality was related to performance, it got me interested in what happens if instead of going to another language, we just ask people in a particular group, how do they describe each other? And so one of the groups that we looked at was uh, retail workers. It just so happened one of my students was working in retail at the time and so could access lots of retail workers. So that, that was really helpful. Another one that we looked at was Aboriginal students. The student I was working with at the time uh, was Aboriginal um, and was really keen to explore this. Um, looked at nurses. I've got another student who's looked at teachers. But one of the ones with, with the Aboriginal students, I didn't predict this. If you know much about Aboriginal culture, it makes sense very quickly what I'm about to say. They really didn't come out with a big five. And there are a couple of things that came out that really are not mainstream Australian or English-speaking culture. So in most uh, places in the world, extroversion versus introversion, extroversion is looked at as the good end of things. So introverts are shy and retiring and this often described as there's something wrong with them. Uh, among Aboriginal students, it was the introvert, introverted end of things that was clearly the positive end of things. They like that person who doesn't talk a lot, who doesn't dominate the conversation. They're the person that they look up to. So that's a pretty major shift in culture. And another one, uh, one that I, I, I particularly liked from the nurses, again, we came up with different uh, factors than what you get from uh, the big five, just because we asked nurses to describe how do they describe each other and then use that to develop a, a questionnaire. For the nurses, as I said before, conscientiousness is the dimension that comes up repeatedly as this is the one most closely associated with how well people will perform in the workplace. With the nurses, with conscientiousness, it actually split into three completely distinct factors. So, and again, this isn't something I predicted, but in hindsight, it actually makes really good sense. If you're a nurse, if you make a mistake, someone will die. This is, requires a level of conscientiousness that most of us don't need to think about. 
And so for these nurses, they really, really focus on getting things right, doing things the right way, fulfilling your obligations, um, being the over overperformer in terms of um, getting things done quickly and efficiently. They they really take that side of things very seriously. And when they're discussing each other, they really pay attention to that to a level that people in other occupations don't. Very interesting. Isn't very, it? It is. Yeah, so th th that's, that's where I've been more focused on more recently in terms of what happens when you're developing a personality questionnaire and you're respecting the people within that group rather than assuming everybody's the same. Mm. And particularly when you're dealing with, um, firstly, culture in terms of the Aboriginal culture, which you discussed, which is separate from, um, you know, let's say other areas of what you define as normal culture within Australia. And then you have a yeah. subsection of that where each workplace has their own unique culture in which shifts the way that those big five model is um, uh, acted out yeah. and what's important. Very interesting. Very much so. Um, uh, when it came to the retail workers, then he came up with a few factors and um, because they're just so uncommitted to the role, mostly it's just like, oh, do they work or do they complain? There were those sorts of dimensions that came out much simpler because they were just far less committed to the role or to their community. Mm. And so in order to apply this knowledge and this insight, um, this has allowed uh, companies to then hire the best person within that culture, within that specific role? Well, th th this is kind of hot off the press. We're, we're in the process of, um, I'm in the process of uh, getting some organisations to take that on because this is something that will make a difference for them. Oh, definitely. So, it would definitely enhance productivity for sure. Th 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 this is more at the research end rather than the application end. So we're in the developmental process, um, so I, I won't be able to tell you about an organisation that's done this in any great detail yet, but that'll come. Because mm. I can also see how it would help um, increase staff retention uh, as people yes. you could um, align to being best suited for not only that role, but then also the different personalities that come out within that organisation. Um, and then obviously their uh, enjoyment for that role because their personality suits um, what they're looking for. You know, it's a little bit like what happens when, uh, you know, that there's this idea of um, uh, being able to understand someone by putting yourself in their shoes. Yes. Right? And uh, we often get told that that's a good thing to do, that um, you really need to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. And the research says you can't do it. You can't pull it off. Um a really good example of how bad people are at putting themselves in someone else's shoes. Have you ever heard the expression mansplaining? I, I might have. It, it, it's something that a lot of women complain about where some man comes along and says, this is what it's like to be a woman. And this is why women do this. And this is why women do that. That a man is explaining for a woman what happens for women. And funnily enough, they typically get it wrong. And the reason they get it wrong is simply that all of us get it wrong if we're just trying to abstractly put ourselves in someone else's position. 
but can you not ever um so even let's say if you don't go somewhere as far as uh, different sexes um isn't it almost you're always looking through your own perceptual lens you're always looking through how you see the world um so even putting yourself in your your neighbor's shoes or uh you know another female who's quite similar who's gone through similar circumstances they may have experienced that very differently so yes yes very much so yes very much so and so, so, so for example uh, i i've had experiences that um you'd think would be character defining and to me yeah not so much um whereas other things that have made a big impact on me other people go yeah that wasn't so bad for me so you're yeah. always kind of stuck within your own perceptual lens except there is a way out of that it's a very straightforward little way out of it it's called listening <laughs> and what it is is that um very often we assume we know what someone else is going to say. We know what someone else is going to think. Yes, I could. The idea that I can put myself into somebody else's shoes. And most of the time, we get it wrong. There's a whole industry of market research that the whole point of that is to get managers out of the thought that they understand their customers, because mostly they don't. That's the whole point of doing market research is to find out what the customers really think, what the customers really value, as opposed to what the manager thinks or what the manager values. It's the same thing with what I was doing with this personality stuff. Instead of assuming that I knew what it meant to be a nurse, I mean, I've worked with nurses, I've taught nurses, I've been supervised by nurses, I've had a lot of nurses in my life. I didn't get this until I asked them. They had to tell me. And when I listened, I discovered things that are going, wow, I never knew that that's the world, the social world in which they lived. So go. it's not putting yourself into somebody else's shoes that gives you understanding. It's listening. Letting them tell you their story, letting them tell you how they say things. That's why mansplaining gets so many women frustrated is because there'll be someone like me or come along and says, yes, of course, I know what that's about. And the truth is, of course, I don't until I listen. Mm. I can see how this would impact um, all relationships in, in every form, yes. both in, in corporate and in uh, personal life as well, because you can see when you communicate um, even on the most basic level, you are you have a thought in your mind, and then you are releasing that into words, which goes, you know, as a sound waves, which then are interpreted by the person who's receiving them, and then goes into to, to their thoughts and how they view the world, and then how they view the world depends on how they will interpret that information. But what does happen is that every time we get together with somebody, we create a new world if we listen with them. For myself. I understand communication more as being like a dance rather than like a transfer of information. Most of the time, someone's saying something, I try to take that on board and I re respond. And if we do that really well, it's like a great dance. Um, you, you probably have the experience of uh, uh, being with someone either in sports, in, in a, a sporting team, uh, I mentioned dancing, 
but you probably also had conversations as well where it just felt like we are clicking. It's just there. And you kind of know what the person is about to say or what they're about to do in dancing. That's more of what communication is about than the transfer of information. And I won't be able to do that with someone if I don't listen first. Um, I, I, I've a, a, a neighbour who has a, a, a long history of ballroom dancing and she'll happily tell you about, um, yeah, there are some people that are just a pleasure to dance with because it gets into this wonderful improvisation one with another. But there are other people who just try to take control and it's a pain in the butt mm. and in mm. the foot, et cetera. Yeah. And it's probably also thinking uh, with dancing, particularly, it's probably thinking too much uh, rather than yeah. listening and yeah. feeling. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, one of the things that um, uh, really high level sports players will tell you is that. Uh, the worst thing they can do when they're playing is think about what they're doing. Um, would, would that tie into the flow state a little bit where you are relying yes. on your, um, your subconscious and all of the information that you've built upon the years to guide you in those decisions in that moment? It, it, it's very much that sort of thing where you've learned something so well that when you see that ball's coming at you in a particular way or that person is moving this way in the dance or they come up with that comment in the conversation, that it just trips out of you what the next thing to say or step to take or way to move will just fall out of you. Where thinking about it messes it up is that you start listening to your words internally and it distracts you from what's coming towards you. The yep. more you focus on the words, the more that it takes you away from what's happening in front of you and what you need to be doing. That, 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 that's why top-level top sports people uh, avoid that for a really good reason. They might talk about things afterwards when they're reviewing the game, but while they're doing it, worst thing they can do is talk to themselves. Very interesting. It is, isn't it? Yeah. No, and so so how um with, with going into um I guess the flow state would you apply that to every profession or is that more um to to not to not think on their toes and rather move and it depends what what's required in that particular occupation. I mean, there there are some occupations where you are required to do some very active consideration step by step by step, and it's not responding autom responding automatically will just get you a bad outcome. So uh, things like if an engineer was uh, designing a new building or uh, developing a, a new way to produce a chemical, working off uh, just an automatic response, which is pretty much what a, a sports player does, um, that's actually going to end up with a very bad outcome. They'll miss a lot of information. On the other hand, there will be things that they'll be doing that aren't, uh, aren't verbal. It's not an internal conversation that gets them there. It's like all of a sudden they see there's the pattern. That's what they're looking for. 
they'll have to take all that information in. I, I'm thinking, for example, that even for myself, when I've been working on a new idea, it often takes a long time of going backwards and forwards and it's not an automatic process, but eventually the new pattern emerges. And that's what I get to follow on with. So with this, you know, seeing the, the pattern emerging, how, how does this tie into uh, relationships and performance? So this would help optimize okay. your performance within a, a workplace. Okay, so uh, with, with, with respect to relationships, one of the things that we need to be able to do one with another is find a way in which we've got some shared patterns that either in the way we talk and the way we act, the way we make decisions, some way of getting ourselves in sync one with another. Now, listening, expressing yourself and listening are, are two sides of that. Um, uh, hearing what someone else has to say and figuring out how that fits with what you've been doing or, or, or thinking or whatever, but also helping them hear what's been happening for you so that collectively you can come up with something, some new pattern that you share. Um, when that happens, it's kind of a magical process. Um, uh, it, I can remember... Um, uh, years ago, hearing people start to talk about the importance of love in the workplace and not in a, a, a sleazy sexual harassment type, type way, more in the sense of genuinely respecting and appreciating and supporting each other to the point where we feel almost like it's a love relationship. And so, like, if you've ever had the experience of falling in love, and my, my guess is like most people you have, there is this point where it just feels like we're in sync. We know each other. Um, that person knows me and I know them. It's not that far removed from what happens in the best work relationships. It's, it's, the, it's the same sort of thing. Obviously, with a romantic relationship, it's much stronger and it covers more of you, but it's the same sort of idea of we have somehow created something unique that is this special pattern that we share. I, it, it, it occurs to me that uh, whenever I've done team building, that's effectively what I'm working people towards is to get to the point where they have a shared understanding of what it means to be a team. They know what everybody's doing and how it all fits together. And it just feels like almost like God ordained. And so would you say that um, in order to create this love within a workplace so that it can uh, function really well and each individual uh, functions really well amongst each other, you would be first starting off with a personality test to ensure you're hiring the right person within that position, um, within that team Not so they all work and then you do team building or... Yeah, yeah n n not necessarily. I mean, um, uh, again, t t taking it back to romantic relationships, uh, would you start a romantic relationship with a personality assessment? Probably Maybe not. you should. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe that might help further down the line. <laughs> um, I, I, I promise you that um, now uh, I, I met my wife before I started exploring personality research, but... <laughs> 
my God, would I ever advise anybody to start a relationship that way? No, <laughs> absolutely not. Um, but you're going to be doing something. If, if, if it's going to be a strong relationship, you're going to be doing something that's actually surprisingly similar. What you're going to be doing is listening to the way they talk and think about themselves and about other people, and they'll be doing the same to you. And with a, a romantic relationship, you're going to be doing that. But when it's you know, like that thing of falling in love at first sight, it's almost like you immediately know, hey, they really do understand what I'm saying and I'm understanding what they're saying. And it's astonishing. It doesn't happen very often, but it does happen. Same thing though at work though, there are those times when people arrive in a workplace and they just go, my God, these people get me and I really understand what they're on about. Most of the time, we're not so lucky. Most of the time, we've got to spend, make more effort to consciously and deliberately listen to each other. If you're the new starter, you have to consciously and deliberately listen to the organisation, quite how it's, it, it, it wants to behave. Most of the best practice in human resource management is about, on the one hand, listening to the person, but also expressing clearly to them what's required of them, what, what your hopes for them are. It's about building that relationship. It's a bit of listening and expressing on both sides. Now, I can see, um, you know, through the act of, of deep listening, it would create mm. a sense of empathy because you are, you know, as we started with saying, putting yourself in another person's shoes, and, and that's very hard to do, but it is obtainable through deep listening. Um, yes. Yeah, I can see how that, that, that definitely correlates. And when you feel empathy towards somebody, you're less likely to treat them um, harshly, which can cause a lot of workplace conflict and relationship conflict as well. When, uh, when you see people uh, who, say people in, in public life, politicians, for example, uh, there are some people that really attract a huge amount, a hugely strong following, and people who aren't following them just don't get it. I mean, why would anybody like that person? The people who are following them what they're picking up is there's something about that person that reflects what others find important. It's either reflecting their fears or reflecting their hopes or um, their, their sense of, oh, well, I'm just an, a, a common, ordinary person. There'll be something like that that will match what people find important. And if you're not that person, you won't get it in a logical sense. It's always something that it's the pattern has been found. And we describe that as being an emotional connection. What's underlying that emotion is there's a pattern that really fits. Yep. And I can see how you would only, um, exactly what you were saying, you would only pay attention to your environment or the individuals within your environment if they are salient to you, which means if, yes. they, if they start to light up something that you deem important. Yes, very much so. And those patterns that we've got that say, okay, that's salient and that's not, they're the things that help us decide, oh, 
is that person, are they paying attention to the same things that are salient to me? Is that's what lighting them up? If it is, I like them because we're fighting on the same side. We've got the same goals. We've got the same things that we're trying to avoid. Mm. And so would you focus um, within team building? So you're focusing on, on deep listening so that the other, the people within that team can then find what's important to each other. One of the major things you do every time you're doing team building is um, uh, starting off with what are the shared goals? What are the shared values? Um, a common technique that people use in team building that uh, is pretty reliable is to ask people what would they like to see in five or ten years? And the reason why that's useful is that uh, if you get the time frame far enough out, most people will find something they can agree on. You can then work that back to, okay, so what should we be doing today? Step by step. You don't do it in, in one big step. But creating that sense of shared goals then allows people to start thinking, oh, we actually are on the same team. Now we just got to figure out how we work together. That's the point when people start talking about what are the activities, what are the different responsibilities, and how we work one with another to uh, get those activities and responsibilities um, uh, handled in a way that other people feel okay about it. Mm. And I can also see as well, um, you know, by having that five to 10 year goal, uh, particularly in a corporate space, or I suppose as both uh, relationship and corporate spaces that uh, you if that would be like your, your mission statement within a company. And so the company would almost be more likely to achieve uh, what they set out to achieve if they have everybody on board with that vision and with that goal. And everyone within that team is exactly crystal clear on what that vision is to all work, work and together. And, and that's right. And that's the reason why organisations do uh, push the mission statements. What goes wrong is that most organisations are really bad at getting people to commit to a mission statement. Um, uh, most of the mission statements I've ever come across, um, uh, you wouldn't exactly die in a ditch for them. You know, <laughs> they're just really bad. Um, uh, they go on for 40 or 50 words. Uh, I can remember... Um, years ago, talking with uh, uh, effectively the chief executive of a very large organisation. And I challenged him to quote the organisation's mission statement. And he got half of it. And one of his deputies was in the same conversation and she got none of it. And these are the people trying to get the people to commit to a mission statement. If it's a badly written mission statement, no one will commit to it. And if the people who are supposed to be getting others to commit to it haven't adopted it themselves, no one will commit to it. You have to have something that people can go, yep, that's, that's actually something I really believe. The best political slogans, that's what they do. Mm. There's something people can go, yeah, I can go for that. That's, yeah, that's me. Would you say the shorter sometimes uh, the better in terms of, you know, uh, I'm just thinking of Donald Trump. Uh, that's the first one that spurs to mind, you know, make America great that. again. <laughs> well, because he's, he's coined that. it so well. <laughs> and it, it's a really good example. Um, uh, 
one of my all-time favourites. Uh, it's it's a business mission statement, which was um, uh, Gore-Tex. Uh, their mission statement was make money, have fun. Very catchy. And they would genuinely make decisions on that basis. There was one point uh, early in their, their history where um, they were seriously looking at buying a baseball team. Now, Gore-Tex, if you know the company, this is so far removed from what their core business is. But they're going, you know what? We'd have a lot of fun if we owned this baseball company. What stopped them was they realised they wouldn't actually make much money out of it. <laughs> <laughs> And But the consequence of that, they were taking it that seriously. It also got represented and reflected all the way through the organisation. People realised, yeah, this is what this business is about. It's about making money and having fun. It's not about Teflon uh, materials. No, it's not that's, not. that's what they produce. But they'll drop that as soon as they're not making money or having fun out of it. And I can definitely see how, how being uh, short and concise is, uh, is very effective. I mean, even taking Elon Musk, um, you know, his whole uh, vision is to create a multi-planetarial um, human civilization, you know, and he's saying, I will go to Mars. And so each person that works for his company knows that they are creating rockets so that we can, um, you know, expand into other planets. And so each yes. person in that organization is, is excited to work there and is willing to put in copious hours because they know what that vision is. Yes. Yes, very much so. Uh, he, he's a really good example of someone managing to get people to commit. It doesn't matter how crazy the ideas are. And to, to, to be fair, a lot of his ideas actually aren't that crazy. But he will present it as this is a little bit out there, it's a little bit beyond what people might have been thinking and gets people to commit to it. Mm. And uh, pretty much guarantee that there's a level of commitment in um, uh, his organisations that you won't get in most government departments. Relationships are often messy. We, we, we all know when we um, uh, Anybody who pays attention will recognise that sometimes their own relationships get a bit messy. And that's also something that an effective organisation will handle really well, is uh, how do we resolve the problems when they arise? Um, people need a sense in which things will eventually be treated fairly. Uh, one of the things that keeps the Australian economy going is actually elections. It's our way of passing judgment to make things seem a little bit more fair. And that in itself is a really helpful thing. Within organisations, there's usually not an election for uh, the, the managers. It's, it does happen. There are organisations in the world where that's, that's kind of normal. Uh, it's not many Australian organisations, unfortunately. But the effective organisations, you don't have, if the managers are managing things well, they will have systems so that, or procedures so that if someone feels that they've been harshly done by, that there's a way of 
addressing that so that it can eventually be made fair, that there's a way of resolving the problems. Mm, and that comes back to deep listening because deep listening is the only way eventually you can yes see that there is an issue and how to resolve that yeah hmm. and so so we've looked at the importance of um doing a personality tests we've looked at the importance of team building <laughs> we've looked at mission statements um and then resolving those issues when they come about is there any other ways that you could um, optimize performance within a workplace by focusing on relationships um, one of the things that um, uh, I, I, I suppose a, a way of kind of summarising the, the things that are important in relationships, I've often done this as a little experiment with people to uh, ask them to think about the best leader that they've ever had. And not just because they want to copy that leader, but to think about what did that leader do to bring the best performance out of them? So when I'm saying the best leader, the person in your life who got the best out of you, it might, in some cases, it could be one of your parents. In some cases, it could be a teacher. Whoever that was that got you performing better. And when I ask people, what did they do? Well, I'll ask you right, right now. Can you think of that person that you go, yeah, that's the one who got the best out of me? Um, some really great lecturers who um, uh, I've been very engaged with and engaged in their content. Um, and then you can see others that have just read off of their PowerPoint and, um, you know, monotone voice. And there's nothing really that uh, captured me. And so you don't retain that information as easily as okay, you so would. Okay, so they engaged the you? They Correct. engaged you? What else did they do? Communicated. Um, but in a large portion of those, it's, it's not a two-way dance as we're talking about earlier. It's more how they are presenting that information in order to engage you. Okay, I'll, I'll throw throw some some others in there for you that my guess is they were probably doing as well. Okay, so right up front, a bit about engagement. They helped get you focused. This is the stuff to be focused on. This is the stuff that's really important. They will do that through clarity, but also through their own engagement with that exact same thing. They will drag you along with it because they're so enthusiastic about themselves. Something else that pretty much guarantee you, if, if they're a good lecturer, they'll have done this at some point. There'll be something in the way in which they'll uh, give you feedback. And it might be, they, they might ask questions in class or it might be an assignment or whatever. There'll be something in the way in which they give you feedback or set up an assignment or whatever where it's really clear what's important and helps guide you to understand that better. Would that be right? Yes, yep, yep. Um, really good lecturers also, um, they probably let you have a little bit of um, room to engage with them. So um, I, I know one of the things with the classes that, that I used to give that I just used to love is um, when someone threw up a question or made a comment, and particularly when it was something that I really wasn't expecting, uh, used to love that because it stopped me from having to listen to myself. Um, it's much more interesting hearing somebody else. <laughs> Um, and, but in doing so, I was giving people some freedom to move. 
and that helped guide what was happening in the room. And most, most students genuinely appreciate the opportunity to participate if it's a way, if it's not done in a way where it looks like, okay, you're being asked to answer a question so that I can make fun of you. That's, that's not what I'm talking about. It's, it's more the stuff where it feels safe to do something like ask a question or answer a question or suggest something. So you feel safe and free. Um, something else, and this is something that people very rarely think of when I ask them, what did your best leader do? Is the really good leaders, and again, lecturers will do this, they're fair. The reason people don't think of this most of the time is that um, uh, you only notice that when it's not there. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's one of the odd things about fairness and justice is we only notice fairness and justice when it disappears. Yeah. And if you had a great lecturer who was clearly playing favourites, all of a sudden they don't feel like a great lecturer anymore, do they? On the other hand, if it's clear that everybody's getting assessed in the same sort of way, everyone's getting given the same sort of respect, um, you won't even notice that they're doing it, but it's crucial. You have to treat people fairly. So the, those four things, um, they're things that good leaders do that produce great relationships and directly lead to great performance. Um, I came across these first because I was summarising what's the best research say about what contributes to performance. And they were things like clear focus, so you've got shared goals and values, um, good feedback, it might be measurement, it might be uh, performance reviews, whatever, but it's very clear and well-structured. Um, freedom, so that within the realms of what's safe and appropriate, you get to do things and you feel empowered and fairness. Good leaders do all of that. Um, good parents do all of that. And so would you encourage uh, people within or, or your research essentially um, would be encouraging directors or leaders within the company to um, focus on these core elements in order to yes. maximize performance within a company? Very much so. Very much so. Um, I, on the other hand, if you're working in an organisation where that's not happening, you might want to start thinking about maybe I need to be somewhere else for my own personal growth. Within this, uh, within this research uh, that you're conducting, um, how are you um, or, or what's the end goal in order to um, actually see this acting out in, in real life? Um, uh, are there checks and balances in place? Is there a, a process for companies to start implementing this? Or uh, This stuff, surprisingly, doesn't come naturally. It sounds like it really should. It actually doesn't. Um, these are skills people have to learn. Uh, some leaders just happen to have learnt it very early. They got uh, that they were lucky enough to have chosen the right parents or whatever, where they learnt it at home or uh, uh, happened to land in the right schools or, or, or were mentored in the right way. Most of us, though, have to learn how to do this stuff. And so the first thing is leadership development, guiding people through what makes for a great leader. 
Um, second thing is looking at the way the teams work one with another uh, and the team development work that I was talking about beforehand. I really do enjoy team development work. It always feels like, you know, dancing is one of the themes that we've, uh, has come up repeatedly in this, um, this presentation. Well, whenever I've done team development, I always know basically where we're going, but it never works out precisely the way I've planned because I have to adapt. Uh, whatever I thought was going to happen beforehand, I meet people and I have to work with the people who are in the room. But at the end, we end up with a situation where they've got a shared set of goals, they've got a shared set of roles, and they know how to work well together. Um, there are also things like, how do you decide who are the best people to come into your organisation? And that's where things like those personality assessments that I was talking about beforehand, like even the current level personality assessments are useful. The sort of stuff I've been talking about in terms of personality assessments that reflect what people in an occupation understand. Yep. So um, so you're saying that the, the personality tests uh, that people do are, are, quite, are quite good to use? They, they are useful as part of starting the relationship. Yep. Um, they can be useful as part of reviewing the relationship, but most of what happens in the relationship at work is in all those little conversations and interactions that we have day by day by day. Mm. Um, uh, one of the things that I, I think is a, a real tragedy about the way people use personality is that you often come across, uh, well, far too often come across organisations where they've discovered, for example, the Myers-Briggs or they've discovered the DISC system or they've discovered, and all of a sudden we have to put everybody in their little box. So that person's an INTJ and this person's a, a, a D or this person is some other type within a personality system. And that's losing what personality assessments are best for starting a conversation. If that's all you're doing with a personality assessment is boxing people, you're no longer listening to them. Mm. Personality assessment should be the start of a conversation, not the end of it. Mm. And I can also see how that relates um, where, where we once again started this uh, podcast was talking about the reliability and validity of a lot of these tests so um, if you've boxed somebody in um, and that may not accurately reflect who they are anymore they could almost feel trapped within that organization as a labeled person yes um, just like um, uh, if someone was to say oh she's just a woman or he's just a foreigner it's boxing someone it's ignoring that all of us are so much more than our labels. Yep, yep. And I can, I can see that, um, that concept uh, playing out um, within our culture in the West where people are moving away from um, a lot of set roles within society um, and even within relationships and exploring the uh, vast array of um, variation within people's personalities and ways yes. in which people have relationships. Yep. Uh, there are as many personalities as, as there are life stories. <laughs> in fact, 
and, and, and tell the truth, there are more because every one of us, there's a, a lovely quote I came across from a 19th century American poet, a guy called Walt Whitman. It's, I contain multitudes. And fact is, every one of us is a multitude of personalities. There, there are common themes. It's not that there aren't any themes, because there are, but all of us are so much more. Mm. Mm. It is actually interesting um, how uh, different, because we're touching on different cultures, uh, like the Aboriginal culture. Um, when you're looking at Asian cultures uh, and how they view themselves uh, and how they view their personality versus Western societies, it's very interesting because they put family uh, and community so much higher. And so sometimes you'll, you'll ask them, so what is your, um, what do you want to do? Or how would you describe yourself? And they would say, well, I describe myself as a mother or I describe myself as um, a deep member of this community or, or whatever it may be. Whereas when you speak to usually people within the West, they will go more into, um, you know, who they are as an individual because individuality is pushed quite prominently. Whereas in, in Asian cultures, it's more the collective that's pushed. Um, yeah. And uh, I, my own bias is that... Um, collective understanding is um, a lot more accurate. Uh, the, the idea that any of us is a um, uh, truly an individual, uh, it's, it's a fantasy. Uh, if you think about uh, anything you do that is human, so, uh, yeah, specifically human. So, uh, well, with animals, we eat, we sleep, we move, we see things and so on. We share that. And that tends to be quite unique. But the stuff that we do that's truly human, like work, like converse, um, uh, create art, uh, play sport, uh, all of those things that we think of as truly human, we're always doing it with people. And if you're not doing it with people, you're not doing it. Um, conversation. Um, most of our thinking, you know, when people think of that, that little voice that you've got in your head, even that's a relationship. We're always doing it in relationship one to another. That, that's why I think there's a lot of wisdom that we've willfully blinded ourselves to in uh, more Western industrial societies because of this focus on the individual as if the individual is separate from everybody that surrounds them none mm. of us are there is no animal that is more social than humans and the thing that makes us most human language is meaningless without being in conversation with even if the conversation is with oneself it's always in relationship that's how language evolved. It's relationship. It allows us to create complicated relationships, subtle relationships, far beyond anything any other animal is capable of. Wow. Um, it, it's our superpower. Um, so to um, summarize, how would you, for those listening, um, how would you, you summarize uh, the best way in order to build uh, relationships in order to contribute to performance? Make sure that people have got a shared sense of what's important, that we've got shared goals, um, shared values. Uh, I, 
have a friend who uh, uh, loving uh, marriage, their professional backgrounds are very different. Their cultural backgrounds are very different, but they have shared values. So discuss your shared values. Um, uh, second one is make sure that you give and request feedback um, and take it seriously on both sides. One of, uh, it's a real relationship killer when someone is giving feedback and it gets ignored, if, if it's not valued. Or on the other hand, if the feedback is given in such a way that it's about the person rather than about what they do. So it's got to be feedback about what people do, not about them. Yeah. And agree your respective roles with each other. Um, I'll be doing this, you'll be doing that, um, those sorts of things. But make sure it's done fairly. If you want to maintain a relationship, people need to feel like they're getting at least what they're putting in. Most relationships... Like, I, I'm pleased to say that uh, while I'm constantly feeling I'm getting far more out of my marriage than I'm putting in, my wife tells me the same. And that's a really nice thing that we're both feeling like we're on such a good deal and we're so grateful for it. Well, the same thing happens at work, though, is that if you're feeling like you're getting more out of it, you may have heard people talk about, geez, I enjoy this so much. Uh, I'm surprised they pay me. Brilliant. Well, these are really great uh, takeaways for those wanting to improve both their uh, romantic relationships and also their corporate relationships in order to yes. optimize performance in both areas of their life. So um, I really do appreciate you sharing that insight with us. Um, before uh, you go, I just wanted to ask one final question. Um, if you could have one um, message to share to the world, uh, what would that be? One thing that does spring to mind is that even in dark times, believe it or not, love genuinely is stronger than hate. Um, uh, even the worst things that people do actually depend on love. And ultimately, love does triumph. That's very beautiful. Thing, I've actually thought about this very seriously. In the long run, it, it takes some setbacks along the way, but in the long run, love actually does triumph. Yeah, I, I, I think we, we do live in a beautiful world. There's some really serious shit out there, but at heart, I think we actually do live in a beautiful world. No, that's uh, that's very, very good to hear. No, well, I, I thoroughly appreciate your time, Arthur. And uh, once again, thank you so much for for joining us today. This was a great discussion. And, and thank you for having me. It's been lovely meeting you. And for those uh, who are listening, is there any possible way or what's the best way for them to contact you if, if they're interested? Probably through, well, uh, certainly through LinkedIn, uh, Arthur at the performance relationship.com, that'll get to me. Um, uh, there's no, uh, uh, the performance relationship is just as one word. Um, but, but both of those will get through to me pre pretty easily. And um, I'll look forward to talking. Great. Great. Thanks, guys.